Normalize. Normalize. God, that sucks. <laughs> yes, it's the one pun that I'm aggressively against. How illegal. dare you? Yeah, Peter Harness is a No more lies. Normalize. Get it? Stop. You need to stop. If I'm saying this, out of pocket. I know. You know. <laughs> the pun council has spoken. <laughs> All right, I'm glad we got that settled. What's good, fam? This is The Queer Archive, a queer and feminist Doctor Who podcast. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Brenna. And this week, we're talking about first parter of the Zygon two-parter. Zygon Invasion. Mm-hmm. Buckle the fuck up, because it's going to be a good one. Let's pull the open and talk about the evil coding at play in this episode. All right. So first note is, we actually watched The Day of the Doctor, the 50th, for preparation for this episode. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously the first thing is that we had to acknowledge the existence of Clara pre-deep breath. That's true. And that was unpleasant, <laughs> but we did it. Yeah, we saw glimpses of what I would say is, like, the Clara that we know and love. Yeah. Particularly when she's talking to the the war doctor. Yeah. And she has, like, a really good moment there where she sees him and does the very Clara thing where she's like, I can talk to you on a really emotionally intelligent level and, and get to the heart of something that everyone else in the room is missing. Yeah. Anyways, so a couple of other notes Regarding how this episode relates to setting up this story, there's a little bit of a disconnect for me because the first episode of this, what you could call like a three-parter, codes the Zygons in a very particular light, almost in a one-note, unequivocally bad, evil invaders. Yeah. Like, there's no questioning that. They're proper invaders. Their home has been burned in the Time Wars. They want a new home, and they want to upgrade Earth specifically to be fit for them, right? Yes. Outside of putting a sign on their head that's like, we are the bad guys, I don't think they could have made it any more obvious, at least in terms of playing into all of the tropes of like, how do we make them look other and evil? They have the bad teeth. They have like the slime coming out of their oh, fucking mouths. They have the so monster gross top. in the 50th, yeah. They're just like creepy eyes all the time. Mm-hmm. And... Just again, it's just coded as like the monster of the week almost, and that's what we take it for. Yeah. Uh, up until the end, I would say, because there is a moment, key moment at the end, where from Osgood to Osgood, they pass the inhaler. Yeah. And that's kind of like our key indicator to show hey, actually, they're not all militant and violent, but one thing that they all are is like the only thing that they have in common as like a Zygon race is that they all need a home. Yeah. Anything else about the 50th? No, just that the Zygons in the 50th are really different from the Zygons in this. Totally. Which we'll talk more about later in the episode, especially in the High Council of Gallifrey. Okay. Yeah. I mean, as much as I love the 50th, one other last thing is it super really builds up the anticipation to see Capaldi again <laughs> and to have him be the doctor yeah. of the episode. When those eyebrows show up on the screen... Nurse, sir. Ah! All 
and cheering. Yeah. Like, we were so happy. I remember seeing it in theaters. I didn't watch the Day of the Doctor on TV when it first aired. I waited until I saw it at a Fathom event. Mm-hmm. And when he first showed up, the theater cheered, too. Because oh, of course, yeah. we didn't have anything yet. He had just done the announcement video where he said, I'm Peter Capaldi and I'm the new Doctor. There is nothing like the first time that you see those eyebrows in that particular scene. But even, like, knowing that it's coming and already been through all of Capaldi's seasons, it's, like, still, like, hits. Yes. Also, random, because I don't know if we're ever going to do an episode on the 50th, maybe, and this might be redundant, but the words no more, like, busted into the wall with a blaster, why are they in English? Why is TARDIS in English? They would be in Gallifreyan, no? (laughs) There's, like, a fandom online theory of why, like, TARDIS is in English. I think Bill Potts is asking the right questions. Bill Potts is, well, always, every time, asking the right questions. That acronym wouldn't work in any other language. Tell them. But, I mean, I'll give it to them as far as it would be fucking hard to type Gallifreyan into the wall with a blaster. Yeah. That'd be real hard, so... (laughs) What do we feel about these episodes, or this episode in particular? I feel like these episodes are good, but I don't really like them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Like, 100%. These episodes are good. At a dialogue level, they're written well. The direction is great. The actors are doing mostly a good job. Agreed. I would say my big complaints about acting don't come up until the next episode. So for this one... Save it. <laughs> Zygon, yeah, Zygon Invasion, the acting is good. Agreed. Yeah, it it just comes down to I don't enjoy them because of the message. Yeah, and so, we very rarely watch them. Yeah, they're they're not super rewatchable because of that. It's just, it's cringy at parts, but unequivocally, they feel like well-put-together episodes. Yeah. And that can exist at the same time. What else? I... In that opening scene when Osgood is texting the doctor, Osgood, sweetie. Under the desk? Yeah. Why don't you just turn off the taptic sound effects? Really easy to solve. I mean, she would have had to, like, make taptic sound effects to go to her settings to turn them off. But, I mean. I'm just saying. Also, like, who has taptic sound effects on anyways? I don't. That's literally the first first thing I turn off on a new phone. (laughs) First thing, turn off taptic sound effects. Second thing, add all the curse words. Mm. That's actually fucking smart. <laughs> yeah, and obviously it is great for building up the suspense because that whole scene actually works really well. Yes, I agree. So, that scene's very good. Of course, the answer is plot as always. Yes. Uh, but again, like this whole episode is directed really well, and that's a good scene. But also we were kind of yelling at Osgood. The one time that we're actually yelling at Osgood and not for her. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, when she is at the graveyard <laughs> and narrating you know that one time my sister died and she then went the tombs- crazy with grief yeah black ass tombstone that just says nothing but my sister <laughs> i laugh every time i can't take it seriously it is ridiculous unlike the tombstone i like the line when clara knows truth or consequences exist because she says i used to memorize trivial pursuit cards so i could win just Deeply, deeply on brand. Has there ever been anything more, Clara, <laughs> no. in this whole episode? <laughs> I love how she's a little embarrassed about it, even though it's not even the actual Clara. I know, but that's like a good bit of where yes. like Bonnie has just clocked Clara and is good. Because yeah. she's like, I used to memorize them f- <laughs> to win. <laughs> the Clara jumped out for sure. The Clara like, did jump I out. I mean, it's consistent throughout the whole episode that... 
or this two-parter that, I mean, they do have this connection that they do know what they're talking about yeah. from the person's perspective. Oh, that was just perfect. Speaking of Clara, my last note on here is legit just ponytail Clara is evil Clara. Evil ponytails. Yeah. Ponytail the means end. bad. <laughs> you all know the one. All right. I think that's enough random thoughts. Let's normalize and head into the High Council of Gallifrey. Okay, we are in the High Council of Gallifrey, the segment where we discuss the folks in power positions in the World of Who production. So who do we got this episode? Petey. Oh, boy. <laughs> Push him away. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. God. So, Peter Harness also wrote our other favorite from Series 8, Kill the Moon. Did he? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. This is the boy that's real, real good with the metaphors, He right? loves a metaphor. Mm, yeah. Thinly veiled. Yes. Alison Shoemaker on Debating Doctor Who talked about these two episodes, and she described them. I'm deeply paraphrasing, but basically she said these are two episodes written by a white guy who, like, really, really wants – he's interested in things that are happening around him, but yeah. he kind of views them like abstract ideas or, like, toys in a sandbox, and so he's playing with them while he writes – and um, that feels right. Yeah, like actual social issues in the world that have real consequences that affect real people's lives. Yes. And just takes them as abstract concepts to play with and make a Doctor Who episode about them. Yep. Yeah. So he's like the abortion episode and then these two, the yeah. migrant crisis episodes. He's like, I have something to say. But he's treating them <laughs> Don't like. Don't we all, Peter? I, I know, bitch. You ain't special. Um, and it's like, sure, go ahead and have something to say. That's fine. But say it in an appropriate forum and not in a way that does damage. Like your job, once you have a platform, if you're a person with privilege like myself, is to yield the space to somebody who actually knows what they're fucking talking about. Like if you want to write an abortion episode, please don't. But if you do, <laughs> hire people who have to actually deal with the consequences of that sort of legislation. Yeah. Or if you want to write about the migrant crisis episode, then actually hire somebody who mm -hmm. lived through the refugee crisis. Like this is not, it's not rocket science. Number one comment about this episode that I have to start with is, is this your story to write? Yeah. And it's absolutely not. It's not. So even if he wrote a bomb episode with a really tight script, great message, and, you know, brought it home, it's not even his story to tell. No. This is one of those things, like, I don't love Demons of the Punjab. I know that's a deeply unpopular opinion, <laughs> but I'll deal with that when we get to that episode. But that episode, at least, had people who were actually impacted by the culture, lived in it, understood it, writing. And also even Saguna Konola, when he did the remix of the opening tune, yeah. he hired actual Pakistani Fuck musicians. Yeah. So that's an example of an episode where I don't love it, but at least it did its due diligence. And it was like, you know who could write about partition? People who come from the, the actual countries affected by it. The novel idea I know. Wow. I know. <laughs> we call that common sense. Is that it for Peter? The only other thing that I always think about when I watch these episodes is that there's a portion of internet fandom that was really mad that he changed the rules for the Zygons. And I like, oh, sure, sure. I don't care. <laughs> 
I think it's all fine. the things to be upset about in this episode. They're that like, is not one of them. Saigons can't impersonate somebody without a live link. This is bullshit. And I'm like, all right. I literally don't care about that. <laughs> That's like the same sorts of fans who were really mad about the 50th changing sure, sure. how the time war worked and whether or not Gallifrey was actually destroyed. And I, for me, as a like a practical point from a storytelling perspective when you get to that place in a show that's been around for 50 years it's like yeah you have to kind of you have to change canon or subvert canon in order to keep the story going otherwise you just keep retreading the same stories over and over again rise of the skywalker so it's important to actually give your story room to breathe so when they're like that's not how zygons work anymore they do this now i'm like all right yeah Absolutely. It's the question of, are you doing it in an interesting way? Yeah. Like, you have to do that eventually and just do it well. Yes. But to not do it and to choose to keep it repetitive and stale, like, eventually that's going to get boring, right? Yeah. Which I think the 50th does it in an interesting way. Yep. It brought something actually valuable. But, again, I have the perspective of coming to Doctor Who through New Who, mainly through Moffat. So the one sympathy I have for that perspective is... The, it's kind of wild that it's just in the end, like, we saved Gallifrey through a painting. A painting, bro? Like, really? <laughs> like, the fact that that was the deus ex machina was, okay, like, kind of funny. And if that was frustrating to you, I get that part. But totally on board with changing up canon when things get stale to introduce something new and interesting. Yeah. If you're changing canon to make your, your show or your movie or your book say something, that's fine. Saying something is good. Yeah. yeah. And then this episode is directed by Daniel Netham. Netheim? Netham? Netheim. I'm going to stick with Netheim. Daniel Netheim. Anyways, he directed both the Zygons and he also directs Extremis and Pyramid at the End of the World from the Monk Trilogy in Series whoop, 10. Whoop. Yeah. I mean, say what you will about the Monk Trilogy. We will in several months. But I do think the direction of Extremis is good. The direction. Absolutely. Yeah. And Extremis is the first one, right? So Yes. It Extremis is the only is promising one. The least worst. Of the lot. Yeah. <laughs> And then also, shout out to Murray Gold, who, again, swoops in just to do a little flex on us. Mm -hmm. The music for Just Come Inside. Fuck me up. Yeah, it's beautiful and melancholy and grounds that scene so effectively. And it is just a taste of what he'll do in the title track for Face the Raven. I don't want to go. I know. I'm not ready. (laughs) Right. Brenna and Caitlin can have some gentle piano and rising strings for emotional trauma. as a treat. I also really love when it goes into a minor key with the scary glissandos in the background as that soldier decides to follow the Zygons into the church. Good spooky. Yep. I like it. You got spooky at the end. Mm. Okay, I'm ready to use my live link and produce a new fun discussion. Let's get out of here and head to the Black Archive to talk about thinly veiled metaphors and French post-structuralism.
The Black Archive is the segment where we talk about all of the fun, dangerous, powerful stuff that's supposed to be hidden away from the doctor and also even wiped from our memories. But here, here we are. I know. Here we examine things like race, class, sexuality, gender, bodies, all that stuff your mom warned you about. This is going to be a lot. Yeah, it's it's this, like three pages on our notes. Our, this is our longest fucking Black Archive because... Yeah. This episode is trying to say a fucking lot, so, so we got to talk about it, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> There's just too many connections, too many parallels to real shit to deny some of those metaphors, yeah. right? So yeah. what do we want to start with? If the Doctor is able to defend Osgood to others as being both human and Zygon, why the fuck does he keep asking her if she's the human or the Zygon? It's like the white person trying to pull the, like, yo, yo, I know everyone else is whack out there, but I'm the good white person. I'm the move. woke one. So, like, just between us, I can, like, dehumanize you, right? Yeah, like, God. just between us. Like, I'm chill. Don't worry. Getting a but, civic like, and <laughs> fuck off with all that trash. Like, I know he's trying to justify it because of his plan. Pivots on the answer to that question, apparently. But yeah. That's bullshit. It is bullshit. There's also, obviously, a reading available here where Osgood is non-binary. They are both... Please stop asking them to choose. Yeah. And uh, the betrayal on Osgood's face mm. when he does finally demand, again, when they're alone in, in person, which one are you? Her face is perfect. She's like, oh, really? Yeah. You too? Even you? And then she fucking tells him off. I didn't answer that question. Why not? Because there is no question to answer. I don't accept it. Yeah. And I want to stand up and clap. Mm -hmm. I get so happy with that response, and I resonate with it so much. Yes. I think this brings us to a good point to talk about French Lacanian post-structuralism. Do let's. <laughs> so this is the English majory portion of the episode. If you don't want to hear about Lacanian post-structuralism, then I don't know. Listen to a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to give you, like, the... The quick and dirty version of critical theory, structuralism, post-structuralism, so that we can jump into Julia Kristeva, which is where I was going all along. But basically, there are these schools of thought and critical theory that chart along time. The structuralists were people who thought that you could basically understand all of humanity by using a structure, usually language, to analyze what people wanted, what they thought, where their motivations came from, how the world worked, etc. And they were really into the idea of binary opposition. So good, bad, dark, mm -hmm. light, etc., etc. Now, you can see why that's really problematic. And that's why the post-structuralists came to really big popularity and fashion, because the post-structuralists were like, actually... That doesn't really account for the messiness of human existence, so fuck off. A shorter post-structuralism definition is to understand an object, and when you're talking critical theory, anything's an object. When you are trying to understand an object, you need to study both the object itself and, key, the systems of knowledge that produced it. Context. So, Julia Kristeva was a French Lacanian post-structuralist. She was she did a lot of stuff but one of her most famous theories is this one called abjection abjection not objection she described the abject as a thing that challenges borders and sense of self so she literally calls it a threat that seems to emanate from an exorbitant outsider inside ejected beyond the scope of the possible the tolerable the thinkable a thing that has only one definable quality 
that of being opposed to I. And that's the critical theory italics I, which is I self. Mm -hmm. So the abject is a thing that is deeply outside. She calls it radically excluded and also draws me toward the place where meaning collapses. It does not cease challenging its master. So let me give you some examples. I'm going the long way round to the Zygons. <laughs> I see what you did. Yeah. One of the examples she uses to unpack this concept is a corpse or blood. And she says, when you look at a corpse, it actually takes you to the border of your condition as a living being. It confronts you with the reality that you constantly deny your mortality. You will die. And when you look at a corpse and then you're standing next to it, you're both disgusted and fascinated because it really shakes your understanding of your life and yourself. She also uses, you just have to imagine 20-year-old Brenna absolutely losing her shit over this because this is so fun. <laughs> she uses poop as an example. <laughs> Once expelled, she says, the border between self and object shifts. When does the poop stop being you? I know. <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> so Chris Davis says... Let's the, print that question out. When does frame the it. It's going to be a ribbon I gallery. Right? This is a movement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but she says, um, the border has become the object. How can you be without border? Because the poop was inside you. It was something you ate. It was a part of you. And then it's gone. And now it's other. And if you sit there with that for too long, what happens is your sense of meaning starts to collapse. Because if you don't have a border, that means there's no distinction mm -hmm. between you and other stop insert explosion mind emoji yeah so basically the point chris david drives at here is that the abject fuzzes the border between self and other and that is both exhilarating and annihilating and Kristeva herself applied abjection to anti-Semitism. She pointed out that there is that sort of terror of no difference for a Nazi yep. between a Jewish person and a Nazi, and that is what drives Nazi fear. Yeah. So I think there's Insert a real yeah, <laughs> but I think there's a real case to be made here for the Zygons as a representation of the abject. Yep. Here's some samples of things that people say in this episode about the Zygons. Anyone could turn into a Zygon at any moment and kill me. It's not paranoia when it's real. We can't tell who the enemy is anymore. So if the Zygons are allowed to integrate into British society and live out their lives, then there's a crisis occurring for, big scare quotes, real British people. If Zygons aren't marked or identified in some way, then that sense of self really starts to fall apart. Which brings us back around to the fear directed towards anyone who doesn't assimilate, even if the existing binary or represented culture doesn't represent them. Yep. Sense of self, sense of other. And if somebody's like, no, those categories don't make sense. They're not useful. I'm not using them. That really freaks people out. That's what Chris Davis saying the abjection does. It starts to undo your sense of reality. And that fucks it up. Exactly. The line specifically, you can't tell who is who anymore, yep. feels like the exact fabricated anxiety that fuels transphobia yep. and even xenophobia. Yep. It's that f exact fear behind the question anytime someone asks, like, are you a man or are you a woman? Give mm -hmm. me an answer because apparently everyone, every person owes the world that answer. Yes. And without it, people don't know how to behave around you. They don't know how to treat you without yeah. that answer. Yeah. And n not just regarding gender, but... I have gotten the question like so many times of what are you when they want to hear like, why are you not super white looking? Yeah. <laughs> and like, I don't look super anything. And That's so that right. freaks people the hell out. So I just, 
honestly mess with people now. And when they ask me that question, I say, well, I'm Guatemalan and I'm also part Android. (laughs) And then I walk away (laughs) because people do not know what the fuck to do if they can't pinpoint the category that you fall into and know how to treat you because of that category. That's right. And this episode talks about that exact fear, or at least it tries to talk about it. Yes. (laughs) And when we don't understand something and when we don't have a category for someone, the quickest, easiest, most common thing for us to do is to make them a negative, to other them. And when it is at its most extreme, it's like calling them monsters. Yep. They turned into monsters and they came for us. And the colonel says she insists on monstrifying anything that she doesn't trust, who's the enemy on the other side of the gun, right? So she says to her soldiers, kill it. She Mm -hmm. always uses that word. And which is why, like, soldiers would totally crumble with the stunt that the Saigons pull on them, right? Yes. We were talking about this earlier because we're like, this is the one thing that soldiers would not be ready for. Seeing on the other side of the gun is the people that they know and love. That's right. And can recognize because the actions of military are only possible if they're really good at knowing how to keep an enemy as other. Yes. And that's how you justify that much violence because you are protecting the very person that you're seeing right now. Yes. Is you're protecting your mom, you're protecting your children. And those are the people you're thinking about and not thinking about who you're shooting at. That's right. But when they're the people in front of you, that's that's kryptonite, right? Yep. What a mess. I think the other thing is, we're going to talk a little bit more about PD old boy here. This is very transparently about the migrant crisis. Just a little bit. Obviously. What makes you say that? (laughs) Other than the fact that this is exceedingly well-tread ground, we're going to do it again anyways. So there are a couple of quotations where it's really clearly about radicalization and Mm -hmm. ISIS Mm -hmm. versus the migrants. Notice how I said versus. One of the things the doctor says to Kate Lethbridge-Stewart is, you start bombing them, you'll radicalize the lot. Yep. And that sheriff from Truth or Consequences says, the Brits came two years ago, no one wanted them, they just showed up, no jobs, nowhere to live, no money. Okay, the sign in New Mexico that says, no British, no dogs, is just really something. Yeah. Because, like, how fucking dare, like, the audacity, because British people may be the only people on this earth that haven't had a sign made up like that about them. Yeah. Like, they've never had to be the ones to assimilate. Yes. So, fuck all the way off. Yeah. And then the doctor also tells the Zygon on the plane at the end. Well, you can't have the United Kingdom. There's already people living there. They'll think you're going to pinch their benefits. So, it is really obviously about the migrant crisis. The problem is, as with all Harness episodes, if I just poke the metaphor... I tiny bit the whole thing really falls the fuck apart because one of the things osgood tells the doctor on the plane is zygons only need the original as long as they need information once the interrogation is over uh see interrogation positions the zygons as aggressors period all zygons so this is what i mean by if i just find a soft spot and give it a little pokeroo all of a sudden the whole thing is like oh what you're actually saying is all the migrants are potential radicals, and they're all bad. They're all the invaders. I feel really uncomfortable with that language, too. Zygon invasion, if this is a thinly veiled metaphor for the migrant crisis. Mm. 
there's no way that there is a migration without it being an invasion is what they're saying. And it's frustrating to see that this episode paints any Zygon who wants to live in their own skin as only violent and militant. There's no representation. I feel like the actual ask of the radical Zygons is not that (laughs) much. The quote-unquote radical Zygons, it's like, here's the, the exchange. The Zygon be like, so we want two things. We want a home and we want to be ourselves. The doctor, okay, you little piece of shit. (laughs) You you can't live in the UK because people already live there, huh? What do you think about that? And then the Zygons are like, yeah, funny because we already live here too, so there's obviously room. Like, we've already proven that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But the episode absolutely does not paint it in that light. It's weird. The whole episode is like the doctor actually saying some pretty shady shit in the heroic voice and it's Capaldi so he's nailing it and you're like I want to love this so bad and then the Zygons even the some of the radical ones some of the things that they're saying are reasonable but because they're saying it in the monster voice with like the overpopulated teeth mouth spitting out jelly filled donuts half the time like you're like oh those are bad guys they want bad things yeah (laughs) you're like think about it so this is why the first time i watched this episode or this whole two-parter i have this very similar things to say about the second one when it just kind of gets escalated right yeah i enjoyed the episode as an episode the pacing's really good and you want to side with the doctor and you're watching his performance and, and it's really great. And then the moment you watch it with a second viewing or you interrogate it at all is really disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> it's so disappointing. Yeah. Again, there's no representation of the Zygon. There's no imagination of a Zygon who knows they shouldn't have to assimilate to have a peace treaty, but yet somehow aren't zapping children into static poop balls. Like, there's no imagining that that could be a position. That they're like, oh, maybe I should be able to be in my own skin and have a peace treaty and live in peace because, again, we see that later on, that there are plenty of Zygons that want that. This episode treats it as anyone who wants that right to live in their own skin are the radicals, are violent and militant and the enemy. (laughs) And I'm like, what? Yeah. (laughs) This is so unnuanced and gross. But that exact unnuanced perspective is what is super common in the real world for racialized people. So it's super common for a racialized person to be held responsible for everything that their race does, right? Yeah. But the same accountability is definitely not asked of non-racialized people to be responsible for what their race does. Yeah. Overall, this story feels like, honestly, a pretty gross misrepresentation of those groups and what they want because they're obviously metaphors for them. Mm -hmm. And a lot more of this actually reveals itself more in the second part. So we will totally continue talking about it there. Don't worry. It continues to suck. Yay! (laughs) Like I said, I think it just escalates. Yeah. Um, But in this episode, Kate does say one line about not negotiating with them because to them, everyone, everyone are traitors. But she's also refusing to see that the majority of Zygons want to live in peace. Yeah. So, of course, the doctor convinces her out of bombing the lot. He said, no bombs for you, Gretchen Wieners. Yeah. And none for Gretchen Wieners. Bye. That's it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. We did it. Looks like we made it. What about Bechtel and DuVernay? What we almost did it. <laughs> about this shit? Okay. Oh, bro. I think... 
Bechtel is a yes-ish. Is it? Yeah, I mean, there are definitely, there are women talking to each other and they're not talking about men, but I do feel weird about the fact that all of the people in this episode who are like, don't be a fool, kill those things, are women. I feel like that's a choice. Yeah, it's like, not that that's bad that there are is representation of women being like cold, hard. No. Like, blah, I, blah. It's just that they're really obvious about it. Like all the women are the ones saying this. They're all. And that's the thing. Like, it's fine if you want to have women in military positions or in power positions. I'm fine with that. Obviously. I'm here for that. <laughs> yeah, And I'm here for there being more women in the episodes in general. But what this episode ends up doing and the next one, too, is it really frames these women with authority as short-sighted the doctor's the only one who sees it and that ends up making me feel like what these two episodes are basically suggesting are that women are too cold or just not smart enough to see the problems with what they're saying i don't feel very good about that boo everyone except for osgood because yes osgood is the tits yes but osgood is a hybrid so it puts her in a different category that's right she's special and then duvernay obviously no not even close R.I.P. Jack, you deserve better. They killed off, like, the one woman of color. And she was cool. And she was fucking cool. And I feel like that's why if one of the women that is being used to contribute to Bechtel gets killed off, it shouldn't count. (laughs) (laughs) Um, At least in that way. Like, she didn't get, like, a super heroic death, a super meaningful death. It was just, like, a plot to show, like, the unveiling of Clara's body. Yes. And this is one of those things we were just talking about when... The whole Lenny Henry thing broke open where he was like, there'll never be a black doctor. And people were like, how dare you? You should be grateful. And then the Internet just got embroiled in this conversation about what does it mean to actually be diverse or to represent? And we you made that lovely spreadsheet that shows (laughs) whether or not it's passing Bechtel and DuVernay. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is that passing Bechtel is an extremely low bar. The bar is so fucking low. So this episode passes Bechtel, but it doesn't mean that this episode is feminist. It doesn't mean that this episode is treating women with dignity and respect. It is just passing the lowest fucking bar. Right. And then it doesn't even pass the other lowest fucking bar. So, you know. (laughs) I would totally make a comment regarding DuVernay as well because we have been extremely generous with our DuVernay test. Yeah. Robin from... Who Watch and Tarbis was kind enough to at the official DuVernay test on Twitter in one of those tweet threads, right? Yeah. We'll put it in the show notes, but it's a really handy like test, obviously, that yeah. you can use for anything that you want to interrogate to see if it passes this. And it has, I think, a total of five questions each. Just note that we haven't been using that really strictly. And if anything, we've been very light. So... If we were to use it more strictly, these test results Even would get fewer worse. Episodes I'm sorry. Pass, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, just a note about that. Yeah. Woof. <laughs> that was a rough black archive. I know. And I, I even know. love Kristeva. I know. I mean, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. And it's actually a really good conversation. But maybe there's something better waiting for us in the heart of the TARDIS. I hope. Let's head over there, and we can hear a word from our sponsor on the way. Okay. This podcast is brought to you by Tarjeta Agua Restaurant. 
Here in beautiful Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, you have an abundance of Mexican and Tex-Mex restaurants to choose from. But why would you settle for tasty food without the authenticity? Tarjeta Aguas recipes have been handed down through the family for generations. We source only the best local produce and the finest beef, pork, and chicken that West New Mexico has to offer. Not knowing where to eat for dinner is the nightmare scenario. Stay on target and eat at Tarjeta Agua instead. We are in the heart of the TARDIS, and this is a two-parter, so the moral isn't really finished baking yet, but we can definitely talk about some feels. Leave Osgood alone. Tell me. Leave her alone. They've already lost their sister, and you put this whole fucking load of responsibility (laughs) on their shoulders, which we're supposed to interpret as a sign of their moral authority, but what you've actually damned them to is carrying the whole of both humans and Zygons on their backs. This emotional labor abuse cannot stand, man. (laughs) Fuck off. Pobrecita Osgood. I know. She's so mean. So real. Yeah. And yet, that's not what we're sending to a crack in time and space this week. Nope. What are we sending? I'll tell you. Just imagine with me. Imagine being a sound mixer <laughs> for literally any one of these Zygon episodes. <laughs> yeah. Fuck those sounds. <laughs> Everything about them. The, so upsetting. The teeth. The teeth. Oh! The, the gushy sound effects. The pustules. <laughs> oh! No, when they, like, why do they have to spit up? When they in day of the doctor, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, even in the elevator where she opens the key and it's like oh, oozing. Yeah. Oh, this is all part of. By the way, this only a thousand percent supports my reading of abjection in here because the abject is disgusting. Yeah, yeah. And they are disgusting. The zygons are designed to be so fucking gross. They're totally coded as everything that repulses us, just like, or at least that we're trained to think as repulsive. That's right. And this episode does nothing interesting to interrogate that in any one of these three episodes. Yeah. Which is one thing that I actually really respect about the series 11 and the ways in which they take that trope and totally flip it on its side. Where we'd see an alien that is coded as extremely other, Mm -hmm. is coded as bad because of its teeth or its horns or its creepy eyes. And we find out that they're not actually the quote-unquote bad, the monster of the week, just because they're the thing that looks other. Yeah. Yep. That This episode doesn't do that. No. <laughs> Absolutely so, not. Bye, Ronimo, to that. Bitch. What about top three moments? Do we even have three? I've only got two. I'm, I didn't think about it super much. <laughs> hmm. Okay, I'm going to throw in a one off the top of my head. Uh, is just the existence of Osgood. Okay. <laughs> her whole character. <laughs> a good cheat. I like it. it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Her, her fit, her other fit, her glasses, <laughs> her face, her other face. Her delivery of, okay, I'll, I'll give a specific <laughs> point for just the fact that Osgood rules. When the doctor says he has, un, he has question mark <laughs> underpants and she goes, makes one wonder what the question is. <laughs> Like, low-key, just kind of innocent about it, but, like, also, like, bro. I like 
the doctor saying when Osgood's like, I thought you didn't like being president of the world. And he says, no, but I like pouncing about on a big plane. Obviously. And then the peace fingers. The double peace fingers. He takes a fucking moment while they're having the nightmare crisis to turn around on his fucking pouncing plane and peace fingers. (laughs) What a dork. He is a dork. Our whole ass dork. Also, when he calls himself Dr. Disco, and even Bonnie can be like, bruh. Did you just call yourself? Yeah. Uh, good stuff. Well, I think that's it for this week. Next week, we'll be talking about the second part, the Zygon inversion. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Queer Archive Pod. And we definitely want to hear from you, your thoughts, your feels. So you can send us an email. You can slide into our DMs, whatever makes your heart sing. And please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. Specifically, Apple Podcasts helps the most just for helping other people find us. Yeah. And thank you to Amani H44 and Stop the World for those sweet reviews. We appreciate your support and your kind words. Until next time. Be gay. Do crimes. Yeah. Tune on your speakers and please be my doctor, whoever. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh Yes, sir